Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 10, our session asking what different prevalence studies and population estimates from the U.S., U.K., and Germany can tell us about the challenge of when, who, and how often to screen for and treat liver disease. After some comments from Louise Campbell about the scope and scale of the coming metabolic crisis, this conversation centers around patient experience and early diagnosis. Ian Rowe and Wayne Eskridge draw clear distinctions between the moods of patients who are educated about their livers and come into the process early versus those who learn they have troubling test results or frank liver disease in the course of basic medical treatment or other conditions. The point, when patients feel like partners, they respond well. When they feel ignored or addressed only when ill, they don't respond as well. This matters because one challenge in the coming fatty liver pandemic involves creating appropriately scaled, cost-effective strategies for screening and stratifying large swaths of the adult population. This conversation addresses elements of that challenge. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Louise Campbell. These are concerning figures that affect multiple diseases. We touched on polycystic ovary disease last time. We know that fatty liver is driving liver transplantation in postmenopausal women, yet we don't screen. Liver fat needs to be taken seriously. These numbers are really, really concerning, but they also mirror where we're losing people yet younger life with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and other morbidly related conditions. So I think we do have to wake up now and take liver fat as a serious condition. So let me turn to Ian. And ask you, A, to comment on what your colleagues have been saying, and B, talk a little bit about data that you've accumulated and what it says up against uh, these two, or these various sets of numbers. Ian Rowe. I just wanted to ask Wayne one one question, which was about what the feedback from his study had been from the participants. I don't know whether they were asked about how they felt afterwards or whether there was any opportunity for follow-up in terms of, you know, any evidence of behaviour change type things. But I'm really interested to hear what prospective patients might think about learning about their liver fat and future risks of liver disease. Wayne Eskridge. We had people thanking us profusely at the time that we talked to them after the test because we didn't just do the test, but then we had the nurse spend time with them on an education program where we talked about liver disease and fatty liver and diet and gave them a bunch of information about the next steps and referrals and things. Our nurses were really, really satisfied by this process because the patients were so appreciative of getting the information and I thought that was particularly revealing because they were hungry for that information. We were not able to track people through the next steps. We referred them to hepatology where appropriate and to nutritionists and so on when we could and we didn't have the ability to track them but their initial reactions were far more positive than I ever thought they would be. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that because in the tertiary care centres, by the time patients have got to us, often they've been through several cycles of testing, often having been tested for many years with uh, blood tests without any real feedback or understanding of what the results of those are or were. That comes to what I was going to say about testing for liver disease that we're managing in primary care and, and through into secondary care. And that is that we have a big referral practice and we see and accumulate many patients who've got fatty liver disease who've got liver fibrosis but the proportion of patients who've had events in our clinics is very very low yet 
we continue to see patients presenting to the emergency department with complications of liver disease, whether that's liver failure or liver cancer. So despite all of the blood testing, Roger mentioned at the beginning, and I don't know whether you know, when we have a population of 800,000 people in Leeds and about a quarter of them has a liver blood test every two years. So there is extraordinary testing for liver, but really with very little outcome. It generates a huge amount of work, lots of heat, but not much light, I think, because so many patients are continuing to present with symptomatic disease without that opportunity for early diagnosis and early intervention. And I just highlight that that's something, the idea of early diagnosis that's gaining a lot of traction now in the UK. And we have a position piece that's just been published about early diagnosis. And there's more work coming very soon, I think, about that understanding what strategies we might use to try and find those patients who are currently presenting with symptomatic disease. One of the things that happens to the patients today is that they've gone through some extended process of mystery diagnosis or feeling bad and not having anybody help them. When they finally get to a place where they're diagnosed with a significant liver issue, they're looking back at their experience with distaste and discomfort. And our idea is that if we can get ahead of it where they view that as a learning experience with valuable content that has the potential to help them. We know that not everybody will respond, but some of them do. And I don't think anybody that went through our program reported on a negative way. I don't think any of our post-tests questionnaires had negative comments. They may have been neutral, but they weren't negative. Do you think that is because it's proactive? And therefore, screening is a proactive, we want to help you approach. And even people who self-refer are being proactive about their health condition. And I, I certainly see a different level of engagement, very much what you described. Well, why wouldn't I want to know I've got high liver fat? Thank you. I want to do something about it. You're doing something that's proactive. A lot of healthcare, we find it so late in the day, there's a negative connotation or the systems failed me. Or why didn't you look for this earlier? particularly in this growing population of type 2 diabetes with liver cancers. Why didn't you do it? Why didn't you? So there's a total difference in where people's proactivity is coming from, I suppose. And when you put a system into place that's about health location instead of illness location, people's engagement is exactly what you describe. It's what I see. And I just wondered, is that one of the psychologies that we're seeing? The minute health services become proactive, we engage way better. Vaccination program. We've been proactive. We've had really high engagement. That's absolutely true. I, I mean, the dynamic of that relationship is so different when a person has a sense of a real partnership as opposed to being told that you're in serious danger or you're at a place where you feel really bad and you're just trying to get some help. So, so that's a fundamental part of our idea is to create that teachable moment at a moment in time when people are not ill, but they're willing to come to a place mentally where they can take on new information and perhaps act on it. There, There is that window of time when people can be reached in a way that they can respond to, not just pass it by like so, like so many messages, you know, that we get. Wayne, can I ask you a question based on your own experience? I'm listening to this to some degree through the idea that goes, you, the advocate, need
need to go out to the patient. But I'm mindful of all the critical care pathway work, what Louise was talking about on the episode that she did with the nurses last week, and the experience I hear from people like you and Tony Villiotti about having been told for years, you've got a fatty liver, but it doesn't mean anything. Don't worry about it. Only to find out that you should have worried about it. I also have doctor friends who tell me about a range of issues. You only tell patients what you think they're willing to hear, which I sometimes think is true. And sometimes I think it means you only tell patients what you think you're willing to say the next sentence of or act on. So in your particular case, and I know you're an N of one and you're a different guy. If the first time somebody said to you, you have fatty liver disease, they had said, and here's what that might mean in 10 or 15 or 20 years or five years or whatever. And here are some things you can do. Are you able to look in the review and have a sense of what your reaction would have been at that moment? Well, I'm, I'm a guy, so I would not have immediately leaped to the battlement to do something, but I would have remembered. I would have been aware as I went through life and as, as I talked to my doctor the next time and the next time and the next time, I may well have begun to ask those questions and I wouldn't have been as complacent as I was about putting on a pound or two every year and I would have been more aware of the risk that I had because, you know, I was typical and I'd never even heard of NASH before I was told that I had cirrhosis. You know, it is a difficult, people are difficult to get them to do anything, even things that they really need to do. You will have far more successes by engaging people early and often than you will and waiting until they're ill. Yes, I, I believe that's right. I think that there's a dynamic here, right? Where on the one hand, we're asking the health system, get involved, get more involved earlier. On the other hand, we need to advocate to patients. I wonder what the right mix is that gets the highest level of success in terms of people understanding what's going on when they can take small steps. I think we have the wrong system right now. I mean, what we have is an interventional response, acute response kind of system. And though we give lip service to wellness, we don't have the functionality in place ahead of it to do that education. So we're burdening primary care with a job that they're not able to do because they can't spend the time. So there's no resource that they can refer people to early on that can engage them in those kinds of subjects. So we, we simply haven't invested in the, in the wellness education process. We're getting the kind of health system that we've chosen to pay for, which is not serving a true wellness strategy. Go ahead, Louise. I think Wayne describes that really, really well. When we're proactive, we get better engagement and people get excited. I suppose if I had the world in the palm of my hand, maybe we do a screening, I think it's 40, isn't it, Ian, that for older people, not that 40 is that old, but a National Health Service check. That is too late in the pathway now with metabolic disease and what we've seen with COVID and look at the mortality in those with metabolic-related conditions then maybe we should be way more proactive. And at the age of 18, you get an NHS health check to pick up early or any country, particularly the US and other countries very similar in their metabolic profiling, is that we want to stop the children developing it. We want to pick up the earlier cardiovascular. We want to be able to put in dietetics early. Now, we know that diabetes, cardiovascular and liver all relate to the same outcomes. We all want 10% body loss. We all want better education. So we're combining that resource. But liver disease is related strongly to kidney disease. Uh, we, all of the brain fog, we get a lot of things that are related to the metabolic pathway. So maybe that 
proactivity at an earlier time point gives us that motivation. But we can do simple scores. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to look at NAIL NIT, an exciting effort to speed the path towards basic NASH and NAFLD knowledge, particularly in non-invasive testing, by aggregating data from multiple manufacturers into a single data set. Our panelists will include two leaders in the academic effort to do this and two pharmaceutical executives with experience and passion for this effort. It should be excellent. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you next week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.